Welcome to the Badlands, that overlooked place where philosophical thought runs into the political concerns of the day. Welcome to the Badlands Politics and Philosophy Podcast. I'm Tommy Napolitano, and with me again is Hannah Gotten. How's it going, Hannah? Yeah. All right. We're back. It's been five minutes since, since we ended our previous recording. Um, and last time we were talking about success and success culture, and we asked, is it good? Or, well, is it good to, is success culture good, but is it even good to be successful? And we ended off talking about competition, right? Because it's very much modeled on this idea of competition. And of course, here, it's very much also tied to the notion of meritocracy, right? Like, uh, people's income, wealth, quality of life, whatever, you know, it's this idea should depend on how much merit do they have? How much should they deserve? You know, if they've done great things, then blah, blah, blah. It's this very kind of competitive model. Um, actually, you know, one thing I, I, I forgot to say last time, but one of the reasons I, I was thinking about this stuff well, not, I mean, it's always there, but I have to be honest, like, <clears throat> and a lot of our early episodes uh, in this podcast are about things like equality, inequality, differential access to opportunity, right? We, so one of the grounds you criticize the idea that America is merit, a meritocracy on is that meritocracy requires <laughs> that people have more or less equal opportunities, right? It's it, it embodies this idea of fair competition. If you have fair competition, then and only then can you say that the winners deserve what they get. But of course, we don't have anything like fair competition because there's massive differentials in access to educational opportunity, especially, and so on. But I'm getting a, like, while all of that stuff is still true, <laughs> and it's very bad that uh, there are such great disparities in access to quality education and economic opportunities. That is bad. That's just like, like it's, it's a correct, but relatively shallow critique to me because so often these critiques, again, they kind of assume that the goal is fair competition. The problem is that it's not fair right now. Some people have an advantage. Lots of people have a disadvantage. That's not fair. We should make it fair. Okay. Well then we get a fair competition Right, and this is just running like Michael Sandel's critiques of meritocracy, and then some people just aren't good at the competition. Oh well, oh, yeah, but who cares? They weren't good at it. Fuck them. <laughs> right. So, like, yes, this kind of unfairness is bad, but I would encourage I would encourage people to think about what else besides fairness. Right, is fair competition sufficient? Is that really what we want in the end? Or is that model ultimately problematic too? And in this episode, I definitely want to get to these like broader social consequences of the success culture stuff and thinking about things in terms of competition. Yeah. Uh, okay. Should life be a competition? I think for a lot of people, um, just to kind of philosopher on it, um, there's just an isort problem here and i think some people who are really sexist make the same mistake as well <laughs> all right so the thought will go like this all the other animals are engaged in the competition for survival 
the weak ones don't survive. And that's the way it's meant to be. Thus, human society should also, in as many ways as possible, I guess, replicate the idea that we live in a sort of scarce, wild, violent um, (laughs) competition uh, so that we can make sure that we're continuing to live in a kind of violent competition. Right, as though, you know, the universe sort of (laughs) drops us into you know, sort of evolutionary path where survival of the fittest happens without intervention, despite the fact that we can make interventions and do make interventions, we ought not make it at this particular junction. Like, you might say the survival of my teeth is also a competition, right? You're screwed if you're the ones that, you know, get where all the sugar lands. Um, It's only those healthy ones at the back that deserved to be in the mouth in the first place. Like, no, that's fucking stupid. Floss your teeth. Use tooth, you know, mouthwash and brush and rah, rah, rah. Intervene. Stop the teeth competition. Stop the rotting so, competition. Right? It's funny. You've made me realize that there's like uh, a bunch of different versions of this naturalistic fallacy. Like, yeah. uh, so the natural naturalistic fallacy for people who aren't philosophers is just concluding an ought from an is is a way that this is put. So you go from a descriptive claim to a, norm, a normative claim. So it's particularly absurd in the ethical context. So people do say this. They'll be like, like, okay, opposition to uh, gay marriage, right? This was typical. So the, the most, the simplest form is going from like, this happens, therefore something moral. It's fine that that happens or it's good that that happens, right? So like- Or it should happen pe- that way. People are, are scamming us. Isn't that bad? Well, I mean, scam- scamming happens. So it's, I don't know, it's fine. So like, that's the simplest version. That's just like a plain is to ought. Sometimes, though, it goes like um, this is something that happens in the non-human animal world. And that's where the, the, the people will cite uh, the false empirical fact. Like, you don't see uh, homosexuality in non-human animals. It's unnatural. No, yeah, you do. What are you talking about? Yeah, like all over the place. <laughs> I mean, because there are other places, right? Like, um why did, why is this lion the head of the pride or something? And it or like why is this buck right the one who's you know top buck in the herd? Well, because he wrestled the other ones out, yeah. Or they wrestled the other ones out, and so you do have in that case right. It's not it's not false that you know the top chicken in the pecking order <laughs> is the top chicken in the pecking order quite literally because it was bigger than the other chickens, stronger than the other chickens. So that's why that chicken gets to be the top. But the point is that we're not fucking chickens if chickens could talk about hey should we keep pecking scratching at and harming one another in order to decide who gets to eat first or should we not because then we can all eat an adequate amount <laughs> yeah. maybe we would give up on the pe- chickens can't do that chickens if they they don't have the psychological capacity if you put chicken feet on one side of a fence and a chicken walks towards that and they miss the gate. And what they need to do is walk backwards to go back through the gate to go around. A chicken cannot do that. A chicken can't undo progress towards the goal that it's reaching. I'm just pointing at one like really concrete psychological difference between us yeah. and chickens that matters here. But like we can do that. We can go all the way back. Maybe we don't want chicken feed. So there's the simplest is to ought. Yeah. People murder. Therefore, it's okay that people murder. That's stupid, obviously. Like, I picked that example because it's absurd there. Right? Murder happens. Yeah, no shit. It's bad. Okay. The slightly more comp, the, well, the weirder version is appealing to non-human animal nature, as if that you could conclude anything about humans from there. 
But then, like, in the social Darwinism case, I think it's particularly funny um, when there's an extra layer where it's, like, they literally appeal to the, like, selection pressure and, uh, like, uh, fitness, right? In the, in the mm-hmm. sort of, like, ecological survival sense as a goal for humans. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, well no. It's just, like, for humans, it's okay that <laughs> some people lose the, the race and that they, you know... Uh, I guess they would say they're less likely to have kids or survive because we want to ensure the safety of the species. What the fuck selection pressures are you imagining such that that's required? Like that one just strikes me as the funniest. I don't know why. It's just like, what are you talking about? You wear glasses. You would be screwed like a thousand years ago in the wild. You need to hunt and you can't, you can't see the animals, dude. You're nearsighted or something. I don't know. It's just funny. Um, is it is it too <laughs> early and inappropriate for me to read a paragraph? Uh, it depends what the paragraph is, I think. So um, C.S. Lewis uh, has this um, old essay. I think it was originally a, a talk that was given. It's called Our English Syllabus. Um, and it was read to uh, English Society at Oxford. And it was about... Um, you know, the role of the university and the role of education and life. So it's very much on this. Why don't I just read it and you can cut it out if you don't like it. No, I'm not going to bother. Just do it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So he is, he's offering initially what he thinks, contrary to what you just said, right? So you got this like uh, uh, fittest survival. That's the way things are meant to go. That's the thing that should drive everything. For him, the point of human life is leisure. And he's going to compare and contrast humans and non-human animals. And I actually just think it's quite funny. Um, So, quote, (laughs) um, human life means to me the life of beings for whom the leisured activities of thought, art, literature, and conversation are the natural end. And the preservation and propagation of life merely the means. So that's the first point. Everything we're just sort of pointing at, he would say, no, those are, that's the means of life. That's not the end of it. The end is this leisure, leisureful stuff. He goes on. Um, this is why education to me seems so important. It actualizes the potentiality for leisure, if you like, for amateurishness, which is man's prerogative. You have noticed, I hope, that man is the only amateur animal. All the other animals are professionals. <laughs> they have no leisure and do not desire it. When the cow has finished eating, she chews the cud. When she has finished chewing, she sleeps. When she has uh, finished sleeping, she eats again. She is a machine for turning grass into calves and milk. In other words, for producing more cows. The lion cannot stop hunting, nor the beaver building dams, nor the bee making honey. When God made the beast dumb, he saved the world from infinite boredom. For if they could speak, they would all of them, all day, talk nothing but shop. So there you go. <laughs> that reminds me of a, uh, a colleague, uh, a friend of ours, who who I think she used to say to her students that in taking a philosophy class, what I'm doing is I'm making you more interesting to talk to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, I think it's a little overstated about cows and other animals. Certainly, like our cats are amateurs at a number of things. Sure. They are certainly not pro. In fact, the indoor cats are not pro at anything. Uh, I, I don't think, other than loafing. No, they're not even that good at loafing. They do all sorts of things. It's true. They can't but. commit. Well, they're a little bit out of the element, I guess. 
Um, but yeah, I just think that's hilarious, right? It's sort of this yeah. vision of all of the cows just out there talking about cutting calves because that's the stuff of life. I said I wanted to get to the macro social stuff, and I do, but there's a couple of more individual points that I want to get to on the success culture thing. So we've talked about competition. Um, One of the things that this does, right, is it makes everything incredibly individualistic and self-centered, I would put it more forcefully. It's about you. What is the image of the successful person? It's that, you know, you get the inspiring quote and there's someone standing on the top of the mountain by themselves. I did this. I conquered the mountain. I'm great. Okay. So it's, it's just, I mean, you know, I'm not big on imagery and stuff, but it's very selfish. It's very isolating. It's not communal at all. <laughs> um, and I, so this, you know. Can we just pause on the image for a minute? Sure. Sure. It's very revealing that you say that the image is the person standing at the edge of the mountain they've climbed, looking out over it. We are watching them from behind. If it was actually about what they achieved and not about other people giving them recognition for having achieved something, we would see what they're looking at, not them looking Whoa. at things. <laughs> that's deep. See, that's why I'm, I'm not the imagery person. That was good. I can't do that. It's not particularly <laughs> deep, but it's, Really important, right? I mean, you have to, also it means you have to have someone with you to take that photo. <laughs> Though probably, yeah. you know, you might have a stand or something. But like, if the, if the no, point you hired was someone. the view, <laughs> it, you would look at the fucking view. You wouldn't look at the person looking yeah. at the view, congratulating yeah. them on it. Um, yeah. yeah, so it's really about celebrating me for having achieved something, not celebrating the achievement. Um, which just, you know, narcissism, something. Something. Yeah. Um, but also isolating. I, I think it yeah. very much folds into the point about like, well, if you're going to be a career obsessive, like having friends and family and socially fulfilling life is going to be more difficult. Um, it also, as we know, in the meritocratic context, makes people over or underemphasize the role of luck in their lives. Right. Tremendous. I mean, just stupid amounts of luck <laughs> all the time. Right. That and that's relevant, of course, because the the more the more your success or failure depended on luck, the less we're inclined to say that you deserved it. Right? It's just bad luck. What are you going to do? We're not going to praise you because you won the race because everyone else got a tummy ache mid race and you like <laughs> just walked to the finish line. Good job. Um, so I don't know. It very much encourages these ideas of self-sufficiency, which are just descriptively false. Um, and isolation, I think. But the other thing I want to get to, too, what do people think they're going to get when they're successful? Do they think that they're going to be happy? Um, I have a thesis about this, um, which is that most, well, people who endorse this actually are committed to an ancient Egyptian theology um, and <laughs> okay, I didn't they expect that. think that their <laughs> achievements uh, and material successes in life will go with them into the next. Um, yeah. 
So they're all pharaohs, right? It's pharaoh logic. Um, <laughs> right, right, right. You almost have to, like, it's weird, right? And this, this comes up in sports too, like the concern about legacy. And we were talking about this, I think maybe a month or two ago, about like people's desire, like I want to make sure, I want to, I don't want to be forgotten when I'm dead or something like that. I, I want to have a lasting impact. And for a lot of these people, it's like they don't believe in an afterlife. So like, so? <laughs> like, I don't know. Why, uh, I don't know. We don't necessarily need to go there. But I'm concerned that people think that achievement will make them happy. Mm, yeah. I have bad news for you. Like, has achievement ever made anyone happy in a robust sense? You could feel good about it. Ah, I did that. Yes, dude. Hell yeah, we did it. Then what? I think you're 25, yeah. you're 30, you're 40, <laughs> you're 60. Then what? Yeah. Right. And, and part of this too, like, so then the answer for a lot of people will be then on to the next thing. Right. So it's meant to be like to fully embrace a success culture is to be relentless and you're never being satisfied. Literally, they might even endorse that sentence. I want to never be satisfied. Yep. No, they would say I'm, that. I'm like, <laughs> well, I mean, on the one. Sure? Well, no, I mean, I don't know that that's the, the response I would give. Um, I think that's trivially true because you have a human brain. You are hardwired to want things. The real trick, actually, the real success would be getting rid of that <laughs> basic psychological needing, wanting, accumulating, hoarding type drive for things in life and to actually develop the confidence and the conviction to be content at a level like you don't need slogans to be to feel wanting or to remind you to have desires or cravings you're gonna have those those aren't going anywhere yeah <laughs> that's not the thing you need to maximize um and ratcheting it up so that it becomes more of a, to actually, sorry, ratcheting it up so that it becomes like a focus of your life, I think, is sort of pushing an unavoidable psychological tendency to the extreme and making it pathological. I, mean, I think it's it's not completely pathological at base because you do need some pushings, right, to get hungry for, you know, attention, interest, rah, rah. But to sort of think that that is the part of your psychology that should be maximized, um, that's very bizarre because you already, you know. Yeah. Well, it's just strange to me because I feel like for many, you know, the idea of success is like, you will have achieved it. I did it. But then internal to the very idea is to never have gotten there, right? You're always pushing to see how far you can go. And like, to the person who endorses that, they're going to be like, yeah, of course, Right. And, and now we're just talking about the level of basic values and, you know, you can't necessarily convince them. Otherwise, that's what I want. Fine. I just hope that you don't think that's going to make you happy. <laughs> like, this sounds really harsh, but it's just true for most human beings, certainly anecdotally in my understanding of psychology, like achievements, great. I and mean, it's fine and good. Um, and you might feel proud of it or something, and you might very much enjoy if it gets you a certain social status, you might enjoy that. Right. But that's still not going to make you like, let's say mentally healthy even. <laughs> and just thinking about, uh, birthdays and Christmases, um, and how there's this mysterious attitude that I feel that other people have <laughs> that I never quite understood 
because I never felt it. <laughs> so maybe this is more autobiographical than anything, but like to feel that the day of your birthday is special doesn't happen. <laughs> There's a lot of expectation that it will. I've never found that it actually, it's just a day like any other day. Similarly, we've just gone through Christmas and New Year's. Neither of us are particularly uh, sort of innately <laughs> celebratory kind of people. And I just sort of, you know, think about in order to make Christmas Day different from all of the other days, there is so much work that you have to put into it, right? You've got to create an entire atmosphere. You've got to make all of your normal mundane rooms and the people who you see half the time anyway special. So you put tinsel on them, flashy lights and snowflakes or pictures. Should, of... I, should I put tinsel on myself next year so I can be special? <laughs> I may. You have to remind uh, me. You could. Sure. Why not? Um, Honey, would you put your tinsel on? It's Christmas. <laughs> but, you know, you really have to buy into it to make the day special. Otherwise, it's just another day that's failing to live up to this mythical expectation, which is not to deny... Uh, well, I just like I literally just think it is a mythical expectation. I think it's a kind of magic that we do, right? It's sort of a narrative building kind of thing. You have to make it seem special in order for it to be special, and that just I, I'm why so, so, I'm not religious. Well, look, look, some people are good at that. Like, like I know I'm, some I'm, people are really good at I, that. I I have to be Michael here and uh, Amy. Yeah, Michael's yeah. wife is yeah. one of these people, right? Yeah. She is hyped for these things. She loves the extra work. Like some people just just have that god bless them we don't <laughs> well so i think the problem is like it requires a certain amount of sort of buying okay i'm gonna put this in a way that is not charitable <gasps> it requires a certain amount of self-delusion because it's not a special day it just is another one of the other days just got no unique properties you know what do you theories mean? The don't making exist. it special makes it special well right but that's that's role play. It's an opportunity to make special. Yeah, but that's okay. Yeah, it's role play. No, and that's fine. But like self-effacing role playing doesn't work because that's self-deceit. To role play authentically, you really have to actually get into it, which means temporarily adopting certain false beliefs. <laughs> oh, now you're sounding like one of these old school analytic philosophers. I know. To act under the presupposition <laughs> of a false precept is to undermine your very rationality and dignity of being. I just made that up. But it sounds kind of Kantian. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think that that is, sort of, and in which case, you know, well, look, sort of buying into those rationalists is just another kind of myth making and mythology and whatever. Rah, rah, rah. Sure, pick whatever one you want. Maybe you should go for the ones with tinsels and elves and whatever. But this isn't meant to be about Christmas. It's meant to be about success. <laughs> it's, it's not meant to be about Christmas. <laughs> look, listen, people, enjoy Christmas. Enjoy New Year's. I'm sorry, we didn't mean to. <laughs> No, the, the how did we get there what did you say beforehand oh for the special days things right the sort of making something specialness um why does that matter for success culture well i think the thought is right you're talking about days of achievement that there's going to be a day at which you achieve some milestone in your career or in your education or something right um and that everything after that point is going to feel different and I guess what I'm trying to gesture at is it doesn't. Uh, to make it feel different would require a concerted effort to change the way that you look at the world. And yeah. getting a degree or getting a promotion or getting a raise or getting another 2,000 followers on some social media platform is not going to have that 
effect on your life, right? In order to keep the Christmas myth going, you've got to invest a lot of everything in that energy, you know, material goods. uh, You need other people to play along with you. So the idea that an achievement, reaching an achievement is going to imbue all of the days that come afterwards with some kind of special life success quality just seems a little bit absurd. Like we have these instances of really special days throughout the year and they only work with a massive amount of collective effort and a lot of your own effort into finding it special. And I don't know, it just seems really dubious to me that, you know, this promotion, that award, this degree yeah, like, is going to getting to your PhD, that? like, did it radically change? Did it, did getting your PhD make you happy? No. <laughs> did it? Yeah, right. It's just like, okay, I mean, you might feel relieved or yes. a sense of achievement briefly. <laughs> no. Well, yeah, but you're a relief. But then on to the next thing. <laughs> Right, yeah. then on to the next thing. And not because you're like, yeah, on to the next thing, but because literally you have to. You need to get a job and those right. other things, right? Like there's pressing concerns all the time. Yeah. Um, but if but I, you know, if I was, <laughs> yeah. if I had a pharaoh kind of mindset, then <laughs> that would be an achievement that would go into my little rucksack of things that are going with me to the next. I, it feels like a, like a video game mindset <laughs> to me. Like I want to get the yeah. high score, right? That's how I feel like yeah. it is sometimes, right? I want to get, but, but then like, but why? There's, no you one's don't watching get the to game. read it. Yeah, you're, you're not the player outside outside of the game who sees the score. Yeah, um, which actually was one of Aristotle's points about achieving, flourishing in life, um, was that one couldn't know it while one is alive. Mm. You had to die, which essentially means that your flourishing is kind of like, I don't You'll know. You'll never know. Well, yeah, it's a motivi- motivating, organizing, worthwhile endeavor for a life, but you will never know if you got it or not. That's for other people. Um, And I'm sure if anyone is listening who actually knows Aristotle is going to think that's some sort of awful bastardization. But um, anyway, something like that. That's what we do here. Something like that. This is not on the clock philosopher time. This is like (laughs) so fucking. Yeah. And again, we're doing this for free. Leave me alone. We can say whatever we want. Look, the podcast doesn't aim at success. That's right. We aim at failure, damn it. No, we don't even aim at failure. We just aim at the activity itself. Oh. Conversing. Oh, that, cha- that changes things for me. I should probably <laughs> do things different. I was aiming at failure this whole time. So now to the social things. <laughs> that was sort of still the individual stuff. I think it's worth asking who has ever been made happy by achievement. Maybe some people, but that, it doesn't seem like it's a lasting thing. Anyways, so one thing I guess we've already kind of touched on, and just this is just going back to the point about fair competition being the goal. In a fair competition, you still have winners and losers, and you still have the Michael Sandel critiques of meritocracy as an ideal namely even if it's fair it sorts society into winners and losers and he argues that that's inherently a toxic and b unstable really um socially because it leads to cycles of resentment of the losers and hubris among the winners we certainly see that um but it's also worth emphasizing that the winners and losers isn't does not uh, map onto the moral significance of what you do. 
again, think of like winning is, is very much uh, similar to how we've been thinking of success, which is not this like, you know, goal that we can easily derive from our basic moral principles. No, it's like this weird capitalistic, narcissistic, selfish, like go me kind of thing. Right. So for instance, socially significant things that will not make you a winner in the meritocracy, childcare, raising kids. Well, super freaking valuable, uh, cleaning. Sure. Yeah. Care cleaning, janitorial work. Uh, I've said this over and over, right? If, (laughs) if people did not do janitorial work, we'd all be fucked and our lives would be miserable. People didn't collect the garbage. Okay, out here we actually don't have garbage collection, but people do still work at the dump, right? Thank God. That work is so freaking important to everything that we do, but it's not because of economic reasons um, considered socially valuable work, right? So it's just worth emphasizing the whole success stuff, winners and losers, reaffirms these, frankly, I think, unjustified and harmful status differentials between people who people like us, let's say, and if we didn't teach, right? I hope I don't offend too many researchers. <laughs> um, I do research. I consider myself a researcher, but is that socially valuable work? <laughs> not. It's not. <laughs> I mean, in some very small, insignificant way to a very small group of other researchers, right? Let's be real. But that is the prestigious work. That's the work that gets you the status, right? Our teaching, I would consider to be by far our most valuable thing that we do. In academia, by the way, that is not valued at all, right? Um, and and it just, yeah, I, I mean, I just, I don't know. It always, it always bugs me how one can be so like flip, flippant about talking about these things, about what are worthwhile ways of living or careers and what aren't. And someone's cleaning the bathroom down the hall. I mean, it's, just, it's incredibly disrespectful, right? But of course, I mean, these just are the norms concerning status that are sort of ubiquitous. But I mean, if you actually mention them, I think most people will be like, oh, yeah, that's pretty insane. Or bad, right? Yeah, there's a... Um, i trying to remember the name of it right now. There's a poem that I taught once for a class that gets at, um, nah, if I can't remember it, it's not as effective. Um, it's a, it's an experience of being at an airport and being a passenger and going into the, the loos and seeing the person doing all of the work, cleaning the, the toilets and it's sort of raising some of these questions about who's really necessary or not. I mean, actually, you know, I, I would just hope that, um, 2023 as it is, <laughs> um, the pandemic was enough for a lot of people to see the sheer importance or a lot of that care, selfless work that gets done or, um, you know, other self-directed kind of work. I'm sure for the the business elite, it didn't. Um, But (laughs) hopefully for a lot of, you know, hopefully for normal people, (laughs) there was a lot more of a check on, just sort of, you know, a moment for critical reflection on on how these things are set up. I mean, if you wanted to go really cynical left here, you would just say, yeah, no, the, I mean, it's been designed this way so that people, so the way of contemporary living has been designed this way 
so that people don't have the time to actually think about what matters more than ensuring their own success. Um, so you set things up in a way so that people's basic human needs, food, shelter, and medical care, are dependent on their having a career of a certain level of income and a certain level of social status, or you end up in poverty or homeless. And you set it up in such a way that people are forced to be individuals and they can't collectively organize to ensure that those needs are met. Um, so yeah, no surprise that nobody spends time thinking about it. The system was designed. The system yeah. here is a really, you know, I mean, that's not, <laughs> it's not a good term. They're, they're disincentivized. Yeah. But, you know, you could sort of go far, far left cynical here um, and and take it to have been intentionally designed that way. Right? We wanted there was a there was an investment in not causing people to have the time to consider what it would mean to be successful beyond what the script says success is, namely. Making enough money to contribute tax and make enough money to avoid contributing tax something you know yeah something rather I mean, loosely in these rough areas sure I don't. <laughs> yeah i mean the the explanation for why i'm sure is complicated for our purposes i don't know that it matters too it much it doesn't matter i'm just sort of yeah. offering sure that, sure sure like, i mean it's, this it's, is a it's, well-known critique it's a, and it's it's a, a tempting established one conclusion to draw <laughs> because it's like it's too perfectly set up for that to not at least be enticed by the idea that it's an intentional design um, uh, you know, it's, you, thinking of Emma Goldman's critiques of the educational system, right? She, uh, in the 1910s, criticized, and uh, one of the things I want to talk about is what all this does to education, um, something that we've been experiencing a lot. But, um, you know, she critiques the educational system as primarily encouraging obedience, lack of autonomy, lack of creativity, etc. And And one of the things this does, she has this quote, I don't have it exactly, but it's something like, um, you know, the, the unjust status quo is not maintained by the courts or by the wealthy or by politicians. She says the, something like the inert mass of humanity who's, you know, it's been pounded into them that they should just accept everything as it is and not question it. Um, <laughs> so that's just a lovely, it's a, it's a lovely piece and, and a good quote. Yeah, I mean, a related point that also comes from that same Lewis piece is that the uh, education system increasingly prepares people for work, not leisure, and aims at making them good bankers and surgeons and electricians and plumbers, but not good people. Yep. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, from the standpoint of philosophers of education, all of, you know, lots, there's a whole canon or people thinking about the role of education in a democracy. And this is, this is the same criticism over and over and over, right? The emphasis on career prep and the economy comes at the expense of being a good citizen, right? Um, <laughs> being someone uh, and, and thus maintaining a healthy democracy, Right. And of course, it's really hard for us as humanities teachers not to also comment on the obsession with STEM stuff now. And also not just the obsession with STEM, but the dismissal of the humanities um, as if doing math and being able to do engineering is 
I don't know. <laughs> Good for much more beyond that, right? As if there aren't other things that are worth knowing or even that are more or less necessary to be able to to do that go beyond those things. this point by just connecting it to the Lewis. So part of what Lewis is complaining about, he's, he's, he's in part commenting on what had started at the time and is only worse by this point, this division between education as sort of an opportunity to explore, to learn, to know oneself, to have this critical period where you're not a part of uh, say, laboring work, but you have sort of some time outside of that to reflect on it, to think about it, to conceive of your life as a whole, um, and that that in and of itself is valuable, and it gives people the skills to do that kind of reflection that they can take on with them throughout the rest of life. And that that sort of role is being pushed away in favor of vocational training, job training instead. Now, it might not matter so much that education is vocationally aimed, if there were those other sites, locations in life for people to engage in these deeper existential questions and actually find answers to them and find ways to add meaning or alternative purpose into their lives that went beyond the careers. But part of the issue that we have, I think, is that we're increasingly losing those spaces. Now, there are some internet communities, right, where people presumably are engaging in this kind of thing. Um, and of course there are real world on the ground, uh, activities, you know, and communities that people participate in that do this, but many of those are on the decline. Um, one of the important ones historically has been the role of the church and the role of religion in sort of giving people that existential out, <laughs> giving them ways to, conceive of what a flourishing, a moral and ethical life would be like, giving them a place to talk about it, consider maybe some alternatives. Oh, it's religion, right? You've got organized religion. It's, you know, they, they want to keep their followers. <laughs> but at least you have a place for people to engage in that kind of just raw human, social, communal activity. When you lose those kinds of institutions, when you don't have things like, and this is a big thing in America, you can go and watch famous sports teams play if you have enough money to get there, but there is nowhere near the level of social club, extramural sports in this country that there would be in other places. So, you know, New Zealand's religion is not particularly high, but the sporting culture is quite high, and the, um, some of the other sorts of activities, I, I assume, must play this kind of role for people. So they go out and they watch the district cricket for free, right, in the park, um, and they can sort of hang out and mix and mingle and sort of have a a tangible leisure activity that adds more flavor to life so that it isn't merely going to work, finishing the clock, resting for the next day of work, doing the next day of work. Yeah. The, the other thing too, it's interesting about religion. Um, I, I, again, I'm you know familiar with certain kinds of Catholicism, Christianity mostly, but um, 
the goals there are not so there like i'm sure you can find examples of competition and winning god's favor relative to other people but it's mostly not that right it's mostly like this kind of personal part of your life where everyone no matter what you're doing um can live a virtuous or religious life right um, and then you're, there are also these communal parts. You're, it, it's it's interestingly not competitive. Of course, there are some people who will do that, but typically it's not. And that's kind of interesting. Right? Anyone can win, if if you will. Right? Anyone can succeed no matter what you do and no matter what other people are doing, which is uh, another interesting difference. I wanted to, as I said before, I wanted to get to this question of meaningfulness. Um, now, obviously, that's sort of a, <clears throat> a classic philosophical question. What is the meaning of life? I don't ha- I, I I prefer not to treat that as a philosophical question interestingly or at least at the very least I don't know how in the world you could ever defend a particular vision you could sketch a vision of what a meaningful life is but in order to argue for it you would need more fundamental premises to appeal to and I just don't think that those are going to exist um so instead I'd prefer to look at a look at uh, or take the psychological version of the question right when do humans find things meaningful and I did a little bit of looking, and there is some stuff on meaningful work, right? When do people find their work meaningful? Um, and I, I should back up. <laughs> we had a um, at our school, there was a, a talk from Robert Pippin on, uh, it was a, a talk on Heidegger and, and Heidegger talking about well, all sorts of things, but meaning in art, uh, but also just uh, meaning in life, though we never got like a positive account of what that is. But there was this claim that, Modern life is just meaningless. <laughs> now, I don't know anything about or much about Heidegger. I'm not prepared or interested in giving exegesis of him. But I don't know. I kind of feel that these days. And it and it really got me thinking. It connects up to this point about the psychological literature on meaningful work. So one of the things that people say there, um, obviously there are things like, you know, does does your work like sort of improve you um obviously does it meet your basic needs but another one of the major things is does it contribute does it help other people and it it, uh it helps when you can actually see how it's helping other people right now for lots of jobs i think people could give a roundabout justification for thinking oh yeah my job you know contributes in some some small way um in many cases, it it really might not. <laughs> Lots of jobs probably make things worse, to be honest. I'm not blaming those people. You need jobs. Um, but even if it does help in some roundabout way, it can be really hard to see it. Um, but I wanted to bring this back around to education. Because, like, the thing that I'm finding, um, I guess we can take two parts. There's the, like the academic career, but then also as a teacher and students. I'm going to take the teacher and students first. It feels to me like, right, I expect most of my students, and they do, they conceive of their education as being for them primarily. All right, it's a self-interested endeavor to succeed or to do or to, you know, be able to live comfortably, et cetera, et cetera. And so it it just makes it so much more self-centered in a way that sucks a lot of the meaning out of it for me. And I think for them too, Um, because it's harder. Again, I'm just trying to imply this thing about like, is this meaningfully contributing to, I don't know, my community or the people around me, et cetera. Um, And it's harder to see that. And it's more explicitly conceptualized in a way that's not that. 
you're a customer at a store buying your right to earn a credential so that you can make your money and be successful, right? I don't know if you feel that at all, but like these are some of the thoughts I was having sort of at the end of the semester and it was just kind of depressing. Yeah, I don't. Um, and I don't know, you know, I mean, obviously the conversations we're having with our students are very led by what we're thinking about at the time or mulling about at the time, um, just because we'll ask those questions. Um, but for me, it's perverse in a slightly different way. So some students have that very vocational, it's me and I'm here for my career thing. I think more often than not, though, I I feel like that doesn't come up because there's this weird attitude that uh, university is not real life yet and it doesn't count. Hmm. And so I find myself having that conversation a lot more, right, and just trying to – I mean, what does that even mean? It's not real life yet. Almost 100% of my students will agree with that. They will say that it's not, right, that real life starts after university. And I think for some of them, right, they're really just picking up on, well, I'm not in charge of my schedule yet. Depending on what your career is, you never will be. Yeah. <laughs> so if that's your, that's your measure of real life, then you're there or it's never coming. Um, so there's this weird kind of petitioning off of what – of this sort of time spent at university and it's discontinuous with the rest of life, which is actually worse. Cause you know, if you've got this like Lewis, the CS Lewis kind of conception, this is that that educational time would be part of the only moment where you would actually have the space, the leisure, the people around you to allow you to ask these questions. What should I take to be the meaning and the purpose of my life? How am I going to get there? What are all the options on the table? You would only get that during this not real life phase where you're not really, but are actually, but not really, not in like a real world, real thing way, getting trained for the real world. Mm. Right? So it's kind of, I don't know, it almost, is that worse? I'm not sure. Well, some sort of bizarre sort of psychological petitioning off and not taking fully seriously without realizing that that might be the only time you get to do that. Um, well, I think, in sort of a serious way with people whose job it is to sit there and prod you. Yeah. I think <laughs> you know, part of it know. for me is is because of the success culture, and this is it's not just that, but it's much part of a much broader set of factors which encourages students to instrumentalize their education, right? Yeah. This is no, for right. something else. Which yeah. is a well-known think... thing, but that sucks. It means that the way they conceive of the education, they're not particularly interested in learning, which right. certainly makes it far less enjoyable to teach, right? Well, but I think that actually that we're, yeah, we're, 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 I think the consequences are the same, yeah. right? Because it's not the real world yet <laughs> mm -hmm. and it's not really serious. It's the sort of, it's just, it's just me it's the tutorial area before I actually start playing the game, right? So the the achievements that I accrue aren't the real achievements. <laughs> whatever success, whatever skills I might get are not the real ones, right? Because it's not, it's not career success. You don't get career success in university. That's training you for the career. That's the pregame. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, and now just moving to the academic side. And I, I would be interested, I mean, you know, this is just, we're speaking about academia because this is what we know, but... I don't know. I imagine it's 
applicable to other kinds of professions as well, though it will vary. But in the abstract, not even in the abstract. Okay. I, I actually, I think that the teaching we do is valuable. So I do feel like I am contributing, but it is, as I've said, kind of undermined by this feeling that it's, you know, I'm just kind of, I don't know, <laughs> just helping to ensure that uh, people can live comfortably, which is good, but you know, I don't know. It's education should be more than that. Um, I do feel though, as an academic or even as a grad student, you're encouraged to also think of your own career as being about you, right? Rather than focusing on the ways that you can contribute to the student population or whatever. We do do that. Yes. But there's still this really strong culture of doing the things that I can do to get ahead, et cetera, and augment my own prestige. I mean, and we could talk probably endlessly about the prestige chase of universities and how that... I'd rather not. Yeah, no, we won't get into that, but it's very, it's thoroughgoing, right? <laughs> and it explains a lot of the structure of the university at, you know, from top to bottom. But that too contributes to, I don't know, at least some vague feelings of the uh, the work being less meaningful than it ought to be for me because it's conceptualized again in this kind of self-centered way. Even though I don't explicitly think about it that way, it it's kind of impressed on you, right? It's hard to resist it completely. Well, I mean, I just sort of want to go back to this question about, well, where are you getting, where are people meant to get viable alternative conceptions about the meaning and purpose of life from? If your if your high school experience is anything similar to mine, then two years into it, you started having career training with an eye on university, university courses for a career. Oh, we were meant to have this big existential <laughs> phase in primary school. Oh uh, yeah, you you didn't have those conversations like, when you were when... eight. <laughs> And the, you know, third grade teacher, whatever, sat you down and was like, all right, kids, we need to talk about the absurd and what we're going to do in the face of it. <laughs> do you do you end your life or do you carry on, kids? Right. Yeah. Sisyphus, age nine, here's your essay. Uh, no. But like, where else are you meant to get that? I think I think I, I worry that people are or is the temptation to be like, oh, this is just slagging people off and not doing better? No, it's a collective slagging off, right? We have we're increasingly running out of. Well, I don't even know if I can say that, but it feels like, you know, we're just running out of important. Um, if if everyone were a bookish nerd, who read a lot, which they aren't, because books are going like out of fashion and people are just listening to podcasts and they're not even doing that. The like <laughs> nerds listen to podcasts, your average person. Um, oh God, too far down the fucking rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, we're meant, where, where are we meant to get alternative conceptions from so that we could challenge revise so that somebody could find some, you know, off mainstream path <laughs> and feel confident that they have chosen a worthwhile alternative option. It's really difficult. I mean, you have to say no to, you know, everything that you're at least high school and university education are aiming at. You have to say no to one of the, you know, predominant myths in media, which is about success and success culture. 
you have to reject the vision of success that is portrayed to us through celebrities, um, thought leaders. I'm doing scare quotes. Ah, thought leader. Oh, God, what a horrible <laughs> right. term. What is this? Who came up with that, dude? I'm Some thought fucking leader. thought leader. Fuck off. What <laughs> the hell are you talking about? Right, but... You know, I mean, it's a lot to put on someone. Hey, I, you know, on your own, call into question everything, you know, the sort of driving myth of your existence. Call that into question and find an alternative means of success. Yeah, we can't do that. But again, maybe this is sort of getting to that quasi-conspiratorial cynical take before. Yeah, we don't want people doing that. <laughs> you don't need um, the conspiracy. Like, there's all these, like, yeah. other pressures and institutional pressures. I just think it comes off. I just think it kind of comes off as conspiratorial. Okay, I just want to register that one can resist that while uh, acknowledging the state of the structures that... Yeah, I mean, you don't (laughs) have to go very far, right? I just gave you the pipeline. Yeah. (laughs) You know, primary school is aimed at high school, which is aimed at university, which is aimed at a career. Ultimately, everything is tending towards that career as being the focus of your life. And I mean, like, descriptively... Yes, careers will play one of the strongest roles simply because your survival depends on you having one (laughs) that pays enough for you to live. It doesn't have to be that way. Um, Also, you could choose to live with less, but it's really hard to do that, right? How many people are going to be willing to, you know, they uh, give up on Starbucks coffees and cars and films and the internet and go live out in the woods? Not many people are going to do that. <laughs> I don't think they should. Don't live out in the woods. I don't think most of you are prepared to do that. I'm just saying. No. It's also probably not particularly good for the woods. Um, True. Unless you know how to, you know, <laughs> there's just like a lot of people. <laughs> anyway. Please leave the woods alone. <laughs> Okay, I will just go back to the Mike Ditka, uh, Mike, Mike Ditka success quote, uh, okay. which was, uh, success isn't measured by money or power or social rank. It's measured by discipline and inner peace. Okay, I'm going to skip the discipline. I, it's relevant. It could be useful. But the, the inner peace is an interesting point. Peace of mind. There's a phrase. Human beings really, really value peace of mind. Right. You have like these, uh, even in like, I don't know, action films or films of people have lived these really full, full on lives at the end. They just want some peace of mind. <laughs> um, it's kind of interesting. Like, I, I think if you ask a young person, do they value that? I mean, it's not really high on the list. They want to not be anxious or whatever else, but it's not like a goal. Um but I would be interested to know, like, I, I want to look more into, I guess, the psychology of that and how much people value those kinds of experiences. We talked previously in some earlier episodes about, like, experiences of awe and profundity as having, like, really powerful impacts on people and people taking those experiences to be very important. I think peace of mind is nice. <laughs> I would like more of it. But I do just want to note that the sort of success drive stuff it's not just that it's like incidentally hard to get peace of mind. It's literally against it. 
It's like, no, I ought to keep wanting and striving, right? So if, I don't know, if there's some deep part of you that values peace of mind, <laughs> um, I propose, I submit to you that the uh, the success culture ideal is really explicitly rejecting that. But I don't know. I, again, I, I would want more. I, I need to well, work so more I on the think psychology it's it. more like... Um, well, I don't know. Fuck the actual psychology. We can just do philosophy about it. <laughs> Does the person who aims at success aim at success? In and of itself? No. I mean, just go back to what you were saying earlier, right? I mean, the thought is I succeed, I get to the top, you know, evolution, promotion of my <laughs> job type. Um, so that the achievement is there, it's notched on the belt, and then the assumption is there will be that feeling of peace, right? That's what the person is aiming at. Once I succeed my career and I hit retirement, maybe even hit early retirement because I hit my bank number goal, then I will have inner calm, peace, tranquility, satisfaction with life. So the success person, I would think, is actually aiming at something like inner peace, but they're misguided in thinking that, acquiring achievements is going to get you there because inner peace at some level has to do with finding yourself content in your present situation accepting that what you have is enough accepting that you've done enough or achieved enough and it's totally unclear to me that there actually is some level of doing things (laughs) that gets one to that level of contentment rather than it being really actually just a a psychological state, a way of looking at your life. You could choose to find peace at any level of the career rung. (laughs) Um, But people have taken it to be, you know, something that you, like a finish line you cross and then the feeling of contentment will come in. It's sort of the Pharaoh style thinking before. But that's, you know, I think, I I just think that that's a fundamentally wrong way to think about it because I think you, you train a kind of inner peace or contentment. It's not gifted to you along with your like service medal. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. I mean, we we were talking about a little bit about this before about like happiness. I don't, I don't, I would be interested to know if people think that they're going to get peace of mind because I think I, I could also see it that they're after certain kinds of thrills and thrills are not peace of mind, right? They're after certain kinds sure. of excitement and, and feelings of awesomeness. <laughs> but isn't it like I win and now I feel accomplished? And isn't feeling accomplished? Like if I would, if somebody would ask me, what does it feel like to be accomplished? I would think that's a kind of contentment feeling or a tranquility feeling. Is that not? Maybe this is part of the reason why I've never felt achievement before because I've been looking for the wrong (laughs) (laughs) attitudes. I'm not sure. I think people (laughs) might differ on that one. Um, Hmm. I could see it as being like a particularly awesome kind of thrill that's supposed to be particularly long lasting. Maybe you're perpetually thrilled. (laughs) Um, I'm laughing. Who and what is that ever true of? of I mean, that's like... yeah, I mean, it's like just... a puppy that's spoiled, right? Every time he wakes up, somebody plays with them and then gives them food and takes them out for a walk. They get everything they want exactly when they want it. Like, no, that's not. I don't know. So either people are deeply mistaken, I think, about the relationship between achievement, happiness, and peace, or they, I don't know, don't at least explicitly value peace, even if I suspect in the end they would find that to be deeply valuable if they had it. <laughs> 
look, a lot of people, you know, get into things like work-life balance stuff because they want more balance. Usually what that means is I want more leisure or rest time. I want more time when there aren't crazy demands and responsibilities pushing and pulling on me from every direction. I.e., I want to be in like a, I want to be on Smoko. <laughs> I want everyone else to okay. be gone. Leave me alone. Public service announcement. Right? <laughs> People should go to YouTube and search the chats hyphen on Smoko. S-M-O-K-O. Uh, it's this hilarious Australian teenage, at least at the time, punk band. Uh, and they have this song. Uh, it's either called Smoke or On Smoke Go. And the... It's a beautiful song. It's, it's a gift <laughs> I don't know if beautiful to modern is the society. Word. It is a gift. Um, I don't know if it's a beautiful one. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, look, the, the key gist refrain is, being, yeah. I'm on Smoke Go. Leave me alone. Yeah. Smoke Go right? is so, a smoke break. Yeah. Yeah. Or just a break. No, it's a smoke it's break. It's a hilarious video, first of all. And just a great refrain. But this is the free. You know, so I've been reading. Um, <laughs> there's been a lot of, unsurprisingly, over the pandemic. Um, so partly caused the flurry in articles on this topic, but overwork and burning out. Yeah. Um, and at this point, because the sort of talking about burning out um, has become a kind of popular topic of discussion, um, partly too, right? Because we've got the rise of a lot of labor movements um, in the U.S., and so a lot of people are thinking about. The, the role um, and the sheer amount of time uh, of people's lives that are being given over to to work. Um, and so one of the earlier reactions in the pandemic, at least it was being talked about by um, columnists and things, was sort of soft quitting, which is basically just doing the bare minimum at your job enough to maintain it, but not success culture, right? not following that that right. mantra and instead just doing enough to keep the job but nothing more um and as well <laughs> the rise of like self-love self-care um treat yourself kind of solutions right so that like you know the sort of soul crushing body crushing demands of your job are fine provided you can have a bubble bath in the evenings um <laughs> and the 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 some of the more recent uh pieces that i've read on this, uh, probably essays and things like The Atlantic or something, um, have shown that if you really want to try to get somebody over burnout, um, you can't take three days here, four days here, an hour there. You need like six weeks of sustained away from that job in order to recoup mentally, emotionally, <laughs> um, physically before you can go back all of these sort of more incremental i'm taking a mental health day yeah which i thought was really interesting because everyone's on board with things like mental health days right with the objective of course you take a mental health day just like a regular sick day and then you come back and you're back to full productivity but it doesn't at least there's some we should be skeptical that that is going to be sufficient what helps people is sustained periods of leisure our lives don't allow for sustained periods of leisure um, yeah. And even when they do, for a lot of people, they don't know what to do at that time. Because um, wow. everything else in life aims at career success. And part of the sort of sustained break is that you would do other things in your life. But if you squeeze all of that out, then, yeah, I don't know. On that note, I think I'm going to go on Smoko and have a bath. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, yeah, I'm exhausted. Uh, it's an exhausting thing to talk about and to live in. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. So remember, folks, Badlands, Politics and Philosophy podcast, all about failure. Shoot for failure. That's the, the message of no, these no, no, episodes. It no, it hasn't been. <laughs> oh, been... shit. Was it not? No, it was like. Oh, I really shoot misinterpreted for... that. In a in a piece, <laughs> I think, which sounds way wankier. So maybe we should just go with yeah. what you said. <laughs> Be a healthy human being. How about that? <clears throat> and promote healthy human communities mm. and societies. All right, let's call it there. Oh my, we're supposed to be on break. Are you kidding me? <laughs> what break? Yeah. I've done more work Busman's, over this break. Busman's holiday. Yeah. It's like now is Bus- when I get to Busman's research. Holiday. Anyways, thanks for listening, uh, folks. Sorry yeah. about the delay. Um, take a break. Be useless. Be take useless. A bath. Be a twisted old gnarled tree. Good for nothing. Yeah. Staunchly be useless. Perfect. And with that, thanks, yeah. Hannah. Well, cool. we'll catch Cheers. you guys next time. <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode of the Badlands Politics and Philosophy Podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can help it grow by subscribing and by giving it a good rating or a review. And don't forget to check out our website, badlandsphilosophy.com, where you can find a list of citations for every episode and access written content that we post there regularly. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that through our website, and you can also find us on Twitter at at the Badlands Pod. Thanks again for listening.